You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Woman on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. In 2016, marathon runner Faisa Lalisa made headlines during his Olympic run. As he passed the finish line, he crossed his arms over his head. This gesture would send Faisa into exile for two years. Until recently, the plight of the Ottomo people barely made the news. Faisa's protest at the Olympics, however, changed all that. So, who are the Ottomo people and why are they persecuted by the Ethiopian government? What happened in 2015 to bring the community out into the streets? Also, what's changed since? This week on Woman on the Line, we try to answer those questions and more. My name is Ayan and you're listening to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. This episode is produced from my living room because right now the 3CR office is closed to most people. So if I sound like I'm coming from a tunnel, you know why. To help me make sense of the Ottoma protests, I reached out to my friend and Ottoma activist and poet, Sereti Kadir. I was born in Adama and I came to Australia when I was about two years old and I've uh, lived most of my life here um, in Melbourne on the Kulin Nations and I have travelled back and forth throughout my life because my family are scattered uh, in between um, both places. I, for the last five years, have been practising as a storyteller, facilitator, an activist, organiser. Um, oh, I grew into my... Um, activism and voice in the context of the Oromo struggle via my diaspora community that I grew up amongst and um, that has yeah, evolved over time to what you presently see today. Before we look at the Oromo protests, let's go back. The protests may have come to national attention in 2016, but the Oromo people's fight for sovereignty started long before then. So who are the Oromo people and what are they fighting for? Um, yeah, so why I would put down to the struggle for dominance and power and the want to exploit resources, the Oromia, what is known as the Oromia region now and what was known as the lands of the Oromo and still is the lands of the Oromo, but, you know, without the regional administration in the past, it's an extremely resource-rich um, part of the East African region. Um, so the dominance um, allows for the exploitation of power and I think the dominance of just to be dominant over another people's part of the why again. The dynamic of that dominance in its beginning, which is really 150 plus years ago, was the rulers from the north of what is now present-day Ethiopia coming into the south where the Oromo and other nations and nationalities uh, were living and really just colonizing from about the 1850s, beginning with the rule of Ted Ross, who established what can be known as the first settler colony um, amongst the Oromo. And then after him, Menelik II and Johannes, uh, extending this, this colonial ambition upon the Oromo and others. Menelik's rule from about the 1860s until uh, into the like 1900s, early 1900s, was known to be um, 
you know, really what established this, uh, this framework for modern day Ethiopia via widespread colonization uh, upon all different regions of the Oromo. The Oromo are an extremely diverse people within themselves, although unified by language and similarities amongst the culture and uh, customs and principles and such, but they were distinct peoples um, before this time of uh, Menelik and still are also distinct peoples. You know, so these kingdoms and these uh, confederations were, um, they, this was really consolidated into this, you know, framework of Ethiopia by Menelik and then followed by Haile Selassie in the 1930s um, and onward, who introduced this uh, Gaber system whereby uh, families or communities from the north uh, were given permission to take land of Oromo people and also um, the labor of those Oromo families on that land um, as, as well, the, the, the premise behind it being as you are now a colonized people over the last 30 years, you've been so, so really your servitude belongs to us um, as the colonizing peoples. And so that was really a slavery system. Um, and the, the marginalization of the Oromo language and culture um, an expression of anything identifiably Oromo it's part and parcel of this colonization process um, if we ask why I think it's because it is what the Oromo will unify around um, and that unification activates strong resistance because in all of this time um, from Johannes to Menelik, Haile Selassie to the Doak after Haile Selassie which is a communist regime um, that continued the subjugation of Oromo and other peoples to maintain central control um, across this time we've seen um, enormous resistance and it's a resistance that has evolved organizationally um, from the Machat Ulama, uh, which formed the self-help organization in the time of Haile Selassie and then was banned because again this um, uh, and also Afro-Allo cultural group um, these two organizations were seen as promoting the Oromo uh, identity and if they do so and people are are able to be empowered by this and they resist and so it was banned and from there the Oromo Liberation Front forms which before that guerrilla warfare had been widespread against all the empires Oromo guerrilla warfare had been widespread um, but it culminated in the OLF uh, which really grew out of the self-help organization of Machatulama and then we came into the so I've kind of like brushed back and forth between these eras um, the, I think I should say a little bit more maybe about Mengistu's time, which was the communist regime that came after Haile Selassie. Um, his, similar to what we're seeing with Abi, or what we saw with Abi two years ago, um, his reforms at the beginning were uh, somewhat celebrated um, because he um, abolished the, the, the Gabar system that Haile Selassie, uh, the feudal system really that Haile Selassie implemented. And the land was redistributed, but it was owned by the state. Um, and he was interested in centralizing his control really in, in one place, really in him and his decisions and, you know, what he wanted. And so anyone who protested this um, was considered an enemy of the state or enemy of the revolution or were coined anti-revolutionaries. Yes, yeah, so anti, they were coined anti-revolutionaries and he began what is infamously known as the Red Terror Regime, which was really mass killings, mass arrests, mass displacement of Oromo uh, peoples and other peoples as well. Um, and, you know, from people who recount this era, it was, you know, extremely terrifying. Um, people's 
you know, bodies as intimidation tactic, dead bodies were often, you know, put out on the street. I've heard more than one account from within my family and outside my family amongst community who are alive at that time who, you know, recount just walking over bodies on the way to school. Um, and this was, again, an intimidation tactic to stop people from um, resisting Mengistu's rule. Um, and part of, you know, Mengistu's time also was, again, this complete outlaw of the oral language um, being used uh, and being promoted. It was criminal to do that, to speak Oromo, to organize around being an Oromo. And in, even in that time, I was actually reading something the other day where um, I wish I could reference his name because it's very important, but I cannot at this moment. Um, but he, there's a, there was a student in the time of Mengistu who started to uh, form the a dictionary on the Oromo language. Um, from Amharic to Oromo, I believe it was, and um, sort of the, the very systematic abuse and marginalization he faced by doing that um, is again reflective of this, um, yeah, systematic crackdown on anything promoting um, being an Oromo because it's then associated with being an Oromo uh, nationalist, and that is associated with um, across the time of conquest, the Oromo demanding self determination and. Um, really to be an independent nation, to govern themselves, to not live under the subjugation and um, that is not in favour of the empire or its ability to exploit Oromo lands and Oromo peoples. Now that we have a better understanding of the history of the Oromo people and their 150 plus years fight, let's look at the events of 2015. Uh, around yeah, that 2015, it kind of began, the first wave began in about 2014, there was the introduction of what is known as the Addis Ababa Master Plan or the Integration Master Plan, which was a plan uh, to expand the parameters of uh, Finfinneri, um, or known commonly as Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, Finfinneri or a more term for Addis Ababa. Um, so this plan would infringe one on um, people who have land or people who have land in those areas or pastoralists or small business owners and um, just their autonomy to, to live on these lands. You know, these would have been given away to massive developers, whether for business reasons or, re, um, or real estate and such. So there was that, the, um, the threat of their land being taken away, which was something that was very worrisome to people would have displaced and it did displace many people. Um, and then also these surrounding towns, the Finfinne, are distinctly culturally and linguistically Oromo. So when you're in uh, Finfinne, it's, um, you know, people obviously, they, they can do and do speak Oromo, but the power dynamic between Amharic culture and language and Oromo is uh, the Oromo, are, you know, the, the dominance is Amharic uh, and Amhara culture is what I'm trying to say in Finfinne in terms of the character of uh, the town, which a lot of people think, you know, because it is, quote-unquote diverse, like different people live there, that it is, you know, it emulates what Ethiopia's diversity looks like. But, you know, culturally it's dominated by the Amhara culture and the Amhara or, or the Amhara language. So, you know, that was a threat to these further assimilation of these distinctly Oromo towns and uh, areas who, you know, speak predominantly Oromo and, you know, the writing of the, um, the signs and um, are in Oromo and, I'm not trying to minimize the, you know, the importance of the uh, Oromo language being used to just, you know, there are signs in Oromo and you can do that anyway. But really, when you step into these towns, you distinctly feel like you're now in Oromia, which Finfinna is Oromia, but it does not 
welcomed the Oromo culturally, linguistically. There is a deep feeling of otherness by Oromo who are in Finfinne. Um, and then what happened was when this plan was introduced, as you mentioned, students and farmers and like um, started to protest. And these protests were sustained from about 2014. There was like a bout and then it kind of died down. But then from about 2015, 16, uh, they were continuous for two years. And the response of the government was um, heavy security and military crackdown um, by arrests and uh, killing of protesters. And there was a state of emergency declared at some points, I think perhaps even more than once, but definitely once there was a state of emergency declared, which um, just gives the security forces um, more autonomy to operate you know, with impunity. So, yeah, that was the response of the government. In 2018, Abiy Ahmed was sworn in as Ethiopia's prime minister. There was a lot of excitement surrounding his election because here was this man who was promising to change the political landscape and to ease ethnic tensions. He even won a Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to bridge peace with Eritrea, Ethiopia's next-door neighbour. He's also Oromo. As you can see, Abi has a pretty impressive resume. So, has the election of an Ottoman prime minister changed anything? So when he arrived in power, um, again, he was not, this, he didn't arrive via an election, um, but his be, him being an Oromo, although this was never a question of the Oromo protest movement that the country be led by an Oromo prime minister, it was a source of increased hope that, you know, this movement has accumulated into a power change. And not only that, power change has brought someone into power who is identifying as an Oromo and is also preaching a lot of reform. And not only preaching at the beginning of his time, he really did act on a lot of reform. He uh, released what the figure the government puts to is about 40,000 political prisoners who were uh, in prison in the time of the TPLF and um, in the time of the resistance of the Oromo protests. Um, he welcomed uh, the uh, OLF Liberation Army back into the country by a massive celebration. Um, they, a lot of them disarmed and uh, were ready to participate in you know, the process of political democratization and uh, so opening up of the political space. You know, this was exciting. And he was also, you know, at the beginning, the, the, the first couple of months um, of him in power and also him coming to power was endorsed by uh, Jawar Muhammad, who you know, was a key figure in bringing about this change and uh, organizing alongside the Kero, the grassroots movement. So at the beginning, it was a source of certain hope. Um, and, you know, there, his peace deal with Eritrea, as well as you mentioned, was um, the word of the Nobel Peace Prize for it. What, what um, effect that that peace deal has had is a question and a conversation, um, uh, because you know, at the beginning, uh, there were moments of what seemed to be ease amongst the, the border. You know, the real question of that, I guess, that alliance is still, still a point of conversation now. So where the celebration of him sort of shifted, and I think the point I was making there was that um, it doesn't really matter that he's in Oromo uh, in power if his practices are not democratic, if there are still people being targeted um, for differing views or for being vocally or more nationalist, which, you know, is the target uh, for his administration now in terms of being a threat or being anti-peace. Recently, an important figure in Ottoman's fight for freedom lost his life. His name was Huchela Hundesa. Who was he and what did he mean to the community and Sarati? Huchela Hundesa was an uh, Oromo singer. A songwriter, activist, uh, and 
really like icon, icon of our generation um, in terms of the music and art scene and you know, a political scene, even if he wasn't a politician, his music made consistent commentary on the revolution of the you know, 2014 through to 2016. It was music that generally, you know, was the backdrop. Roman music has been the backdrop of the revolution since, you know, um, the Afranc Allo was formed in the time of Haile Selassie, the cultural group, and um, which, which was a voice of really the resistance then, you know, that has been a continuous trend amongst the Oromo using music and poetry and other cultural expression to um, empower the movement. And he was no different. He really reflected that energy um, coming into the movement of protesters on the streets. And, um, you know, he he was, he also, the historical accounts that he would give in his, in his music were um, indicative of how much knowledge that he had and kept on the Oromo people and their struggle and who they were. Um, and he was just, just such an empowering, empowering figure um, for Oromos globally in the country and in the diaspora. And his, his work as an artist and his skill as an artist was recognized across the continent. So to the movement, like he, he really belonged to everyone. Um, and when I say that, I mean, everyone loved him like he, he was his. And um, the Oromo ha have such a collectivist worldview and, you know, work in such a collectivist manner that you feel that belonging just as an ordinary Oromo, you know, wherever, wherever in the world you are. Um, but when you contribute the way that he contributed to the Oromo consciousness and cause, you know, you really take up a very intimate place in the hearts of all Oromo people and households. And that's who Haj Alu was. He was, you know, a friend to all Oromos. He was this voice of a generation. He was this power of a movement. Um, he was a jovial person. Um, to me, I've, I, so I remember when his song Malanjira came out during the protest movement uh, in the six, 2016, around that time. Um, and I, I just, all music that was coming out at that time was like, yeah, you know, it was, it gave us energy and power, even, you know, being in the diaspora, trying to, um, you know, organize in support of the movement in the country. And um, it, it's, it's an intimate song to me because of, there's a line in it um, that, you know, and it goes on to say, you know, don't, don't be sad or don't cry, we're going to win this. Um, and, you know, so I remember like perking up when I heard that for the first time and, um, but beyond just like, you know, the personal effect, it, like I said, he just belonged to us all. It really felt like that's my brother, you know, that's my peoples. Um, I met him when I was in Minnesota briefly. Um, and when I was in Finfinne over the last six months, I talked to him on the phone, um, uh, very briefly with the hopes to catch up. Um, and, you know, I guess stardom in the Oromo community doesn't mean an inaccessibility. That's how grassroots our relationships are. Um, and he spent some time in DC as well. So he, you know, the Oromo community there are very, very close with him, very familiar with him. For them, it was really like losing a brother, losing a family member, even more so than all of us who feel that way anyway. Um, yeah, he was hope, you know, and he really, like he came, when his music shot up, he had just come out of prison for, he was in prison for a number of years for his activism um, in his schooling community. Um, I'm not sure if he had released music at the time when he was arrested or if it was just his general activism that had him persecuted by the TPLF, but either way he was arrested. Um, and he having his music on your phone in the type of time of TPLF was cause for arrest. That's how empowering it was. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there on him. I think one thing that I will say on this is that Previous to Hajj Alu, us as this upcoming Oromo generation, I'm 25, and 
um, my peers, we knew of the struggle well via our parents um, and our communities. And even in the time of TPLF, you know, we witnessed the injustices and such, but losing someone like Hachal was pivotal for me as, a, as an activist. It really consolidated the need for me to give everything I can to this call so that my kids never have to experience um, this kind of loss again. And I know that it was, it had similar effect on many people of my generation who like someone that Ebisa Adunya was an artist um, uh, years ago who was assassinated also. And my grandfather, who was an up and coming academic, um, the first from his community uh, was assassinated also. And there are so many stories like this amongst the Oromo community where people who provide this sort of upliftment for the cause and the people and the identity are targeted by the state. And again, we knew this via the stories of our parents, but, and you know, we, we carried on that intergenerational pain and also struggle and hope, um, but him really feeling like one, like our peers, he felt like my peer um, being assassinated by the state and I should give context into that as well. He gave an interview on the Urami Media Network a week before he was assassinated. And in this interview, he expressed a kind of like, I wouldn't even consider it a severe, um, uh, vocalization of dissent, but he expressed um, that the system of cultural and political domination is his enemy. Um, and then he also gave a recount of his version and the real version of who Menelik was to the Oromo people. Menelik, again, is that colonizer who's now um, being uh, memorialized via the Abi administration, via a statue, and, um, you know, which is really symbolic of, again, this ideology of the state. Um, while he was a colonizer to the Oromo. So he gives this recount that, you know, is, is degrading of Menelik. You know, he says he came on a donkey from the north. He took the horse of an Oromo man when the, the Oromo were known to be, um, you know, master horse peoples, horse men and peoples. And, you know, he says he took this horse that he's on that statue on now in the palace. That horse he's on is the horse of an Oromo person. That's not his horse. And he goes, when I see that horse, I, I'm pissed off, you know, because I know where that horse came from. Um, and he was assassinated a week later um, and the government, you know, as states do come are convening or have convened, you know, an investigation, which is not independent and which is one of the cause of this movement right now. The, the assassination is investigated independently. After Huchella Hundes's killing, a series of protests broke out. Amnesty International reports that 177 people lost their lives, including a police officer. Thousands of people were arrested. Among them, the journalist Jawah Muhammad. And who is Jawah Muhammad? Well, he's the founder of the communications empire, Oromo Media Network. Jawah is also a former ally of Abi Ahmed, the prime minister of Ethiopia. And like Abi, is also Oromo. But their relationship broke down recently over the direction of the country. The Ethiopian government claims that Jawah Muhammad was responsible for inciting the protests that led to countless deaths, including that of a police officer. At the time of this recording, Jawah Muhammad is still in custody. As we've shown, speaking out against the Ethiopian government is a costly exercise. So why does Sereti continue to do so? Wouldn't it be easier for her and everyone she loves if she just kept quiet? Really my responsibility to, to continue on the struggle of self-determination that has been ongoing for 150 years. It's really in you know, it's in my lineage, it's it's what I've grown up amongst. Um, and just as a justice-loving person in general, being connected to um, a cause for justice via who I am um, puts me in a position of duty again. And, you know, now 
it's so personal. Um, the people who are imprisoned and, you know, having just spent six months um, living and working in the country, these are people I know by name. These are people who I, I'm friends with. These are people I love. Um, and it is, it, it, it is costly because the um, Ethiopian government, you know, will go for your family if they cannot get to you. So, you know, it's, it's not something that we do without the weight of that on our conscience. But what choice do I have if I say I value justice? If I say, you know, um, you know, I care about freedoms, then, you know, this is a truth that anyone can recognize. But I'm in it. I'm an Oromo. I'm a proud Oromo. Um, I, I have to struggle for this. And that's, you know, the prerogative right now of being involved in this is how do we make sure that the Oromo are achieve their ultimate self-determination and sovereignty? Um, how do they decide for themselves who they are to the Ethiopian state and who they're not? Um, you know, this is to be who you are, fundamental human right, fundamental human right. And that is a nice place to end on. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to follow the Otomo protests, check out the hashtag Otomo protests, spelled O-R-O-M-O, protests. If you're on Instagram, check out the account Otomo proverb, spelled O-R-O-M-O, proverb. We're also on Instagram at woman underscore on underscore the underscore line. Woman on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CI in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate the financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 039419 that's 0394198377. Woman on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website at 3cr.org.au slash woman on the line. Our new theme music is by Replica Vara. We leave you today with a track by Otomo singer Hawi Tazara. The song is a dedication to the Otomo movement and it's called K Kero. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ayan Shirwa.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.